verses 31 to 37, the end of the chapter. Okay, if you could pray with me before we read together. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through the written word and the word Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that your spirit would settle us down this morning and prepare us to hear what you have to say. And I pray that uh, each of us will receive something from you today that will encourage, uh, empower, convict if necessary, challenge, uh, that we might see you and just be really uh, in awe of you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. King George VI reigned in England from 1936 until 1952. He had a speech impediment throughout his entire life. And you can imagine what it would be like when you know what you want to say, both in private and in public settings, but you're not able to speak. The guy had emotional, psychological, social uh, fallout and impact in his own life because he, he wouldn't be able to speak in a variety of settings. You might be familiar with his story. There was a film made about his life, in particular how his speech impediment uh, impacted his life that came out in 2010. And I want you to watch just a brief clip of this film. It's just about three minutes long. Let's take a look at it uh, together. 
Good afternoon. This is the BBC National Programme and Empire Service, taking you to Wembley Stadium for the closing ceremony of the Empire Exhibition, where His Royal Highness the Duke of York will read a message from his father, His Majesty King George V. Fifty-eight British colonies and dominions have taken part, making this the largest exhibition staged anywhere in the world. Remember, sir, three flashes, then steady red means your life. Using the new invention of radio, the opening ceremony was the first time His Majesty the King addressed his subjects on the wireless. At the close of the first season, the heir to the throne, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, made his first broadcast. And today... His younger brother, His Royal Highness the Duke of York, will give his inaugural broadcast to the nation and the world. I have received from His Majesty Had you watch that brief clip because there's no way that I can kind of create the emotion and that you would enter into the pain of what it would be like, not just in massive settings like that, but in private and intimate settings, to not be able to speak, how it would impact your life. He was yet to be king in this particular clip uh, that takes place in the film. He's He's only the Royal Highness Duke of York at that point um, in his life as he was to give that speech. I I had us watch this this morning as a a segue, if you will, to enter in into today's passage. As we continue through Mark's gospel, we have seen healing after healing after healing. And in today's passage, the man that Jesus 
heals is someone who has a speech impediment that is far more severe than what King George VI had. The, the text describes the man in our passage today who is unnamed as hardly able to speak. The image that I have of him is someone who cannot really enunciate words, but, but when he would struggle really hard, he could kind of make noises and communicate things. Not only was that his condition regarding speech, but as we heard in the passage that was just read, he also was deaf. In the first century, there's no uh, deaf community. There's no sign language. So we can imagine the emotional, the social, the psychological misery, really, that this man who encounters Jesus in today's passage lived in. So I want to turn our attention to the word today. We're going to go through the passage, and then I'm going to draw some implications out of it. Let's go through this verse by verse, beginning in Mark 7 and verse 31. It says that Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. So Mark begins verse 31 with these topographical or geographical details. And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you've noticed I've had maps up here. I, I like maps. Do we have any map lovers uh, out there? So part of this I li- is I like maps. But part of this is from the text. God, through his inspired word, has given us topographical details about uh, Jesus' journey. And so I'm going to try and use a, a pointer here today. I don't know if this is old school or whatever. But it says um, in, in the first verse here that he left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the Decapolis. So Jesus is in this area, if you were here last week, where he encountered this Syrophoenician woman, his first journey outside of Israel proper. And then the text gives us this very circuitous route. So he's in this area. He goes up into this area works his way back down to the Sea of Galilee. The text doesn't say it, but he probably got into a boat and went across the other side of the Sea of Galilee into this region of the Decapolis. Decapolis is a combination of two uh, Greek words. It means ten cities. And so you see these cities here, Mediterranean Sea, the Sea of Galilee, just this little body of water is right there that he went across. So he's somewhere in this region. After the circuitous route, after healing the Syrophoenician woman, he is back um, into the land, so, uh, the land of Israel. So Mark has given us these cues, and then we come to verse 32. It says, There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, could, could, could hardly speak, or had a speech impediment. I don't know how your translation translates this word, but this is a very unique word. In fact, the, Greek, the word in the Greek New Testament here only occurs in this place in the Greek New Testament. Now, there are actually a lot of words that only occur one time in the Greek New Testament, but this word is even special among those words because the word here that's describing that this man can hardly speak is also used only one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, But Hebrew was basically not being spoken a whole lot in the first century, so it had been translated into Greek, the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
this same word is only used one time in this vast, vast, much larger corpus of material, the Old Testament. And it is used, uh, it is used in Isaiah chapter 35. Let's take a look at it on the screen here. It says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue, that's the word there, and the mute tongue shout for joy. So there is a cue in this passage for the reader who knows his, his Greek translation of the Old Testament. There is an allusion to Jesus is in part in his first coming, but much more in his second coming, coming to fulfill this prophecy. And it is a reminder that things in this world are not as they should be. People, human beings, their bodies, their tongues, their ears are not working. But there is coming a time, this is a messianic prophecy, when this will change. Now we get glimpses of this, like in today's passage at the first coming, but it is at Jesus' second coming where we will have complete fulfillment of these messianic prophecies of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. So back to our passage here. So we have these these topographical details in verse 31. In verse 32, we have the crowd or the people bring him this man who can hardly speak. And they beg him, they beg Jesus to place his hand on the man. So I think what we have going on here, this is interesting, it doesn't say, will you heal him? Will you place your hand on the man? This is the kind of language that we would use when we're talking about a blessing. You see, I think it is so beyond their mentality that this person who can just basically uh, say a few noises in order to communicate, who cannot hear, it is beyond their comprehension that even this miracle worker, Jesus, is actually going to make him able to speak and able to hear. He's socially ostracized. He's never done this. So I think what we have here is the crowd, the people are, are, are bringing him to Jesus, but they're just saying, will you, will you put your hand on him? Will you bless him? Maybe something. We, we know that you've done amazing things. We've been seeing them uh, week after week, chapter after chapter. We've been seeing these amazing things. And so some of these things have made their way into this region of the Decapolis. I skipped one slide there briefly. Let me go back to it. Those of you that have been with us for weeks or months, you remember Jesus has traveled one other time into this region of the Decapolis on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, on the east side, as it were. And he went there and he cast the the demons out of the demoniac. Do you remember that? Where did he send the demons? Into the pigs. And so you have this huge number of dead pigs. And the consequence there is the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You might remember that that man experienced exorcism and the demons left him and Jesus sent him as a missionary into the Decapolis. Jesus leaves the region. This is his next time back. I think the gospel has advanced somewhat and that the crowds are bringing the people, uh, bringing at least this man and and possibly others uh, to him. Okay, are you tracking with me today? Okay. So, they brought this man, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. Verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. 
Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Okay, do we have like any gross or, I mean, do we have any junior hires out there or something? Like, it was just like, this is gross? I mean, is this gross? I mean, this, this is unusual. I mean, this is unusual for us in 2017, okay? He spit, touched the man's tongue. He, uh, he, uh, he puts his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touches the man's tongue. This, this, is, this is strange to us. This is strange. This is unusual. I've kind of been working through the unusualness of this whole thing, and I don't know that I have it all figured out. But let me try and, and help you a little bit of, of what's going on here, what Jesus is doing. Uh, spittle, uh, I learned the scholarly word for spit or saliva is spittle. Anybody knew that? Anybody knew that? Spittle. Yes, a couple of you did. A couple of you are smart. All right. Spittle was regarded as an important curative force in Judaism and in Hellenism. So both in, in the ancient Hebrew culture and in ancient Greek culture, saliva was believed to have this curative force, to have these powers. So Jesus seems to be somewhat understanding his culture and doing from 2017 what looks like really strange things. But I think what he is doing is he's just connecting with his people about where they are. He's doing what might be expected from someone who might be able to heal, although they don't really think they're going to be completely surprised. We're going to see this at the end. They don't really think there's going to be a healing here. I think they're just looking for him to do something. But if there were going to be some healing, they would anticipate something strange like this that just seems strange to us, but it wouldn't be strange to them. So he puts his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. But look what, happens, look what happens next. Verse 34. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, said to the man, Ephatha. So he looks to heaven. So I think verse 33 is what they were expecting. This is, this is kind of what they're expecting. It seems strange to us, but spitting, fingers in the ears. But then what they're not expecting is the source of healing is not going to come from the saliva. The source of he- healing is not coming from the, the fingers. He has this deep sigh, and then he looks to heaven, acknowledging that the power of God, the power of his Father that he has this intimate relationship with, this is where the power for healing is coming. This is what the reader is supposed to take away from verse 34. Now, before he says this uh, Aramaic word, which is similar to Hebrew, the ephatha is is an Aramaic word. Before he says that, which means be opened, notice in verse 34 it says that he has this deep sigh. He has this deep sigh. And again, part of the reason I showed this video this morning is so that we could enter in to this deep sigh. The deep sigh that Jesus has is he's looking at this man who, who has had this really, really difficult life. And Jesus is thinking about how his life is not how it should be. His body is not how it should be. The earth even is not as it should be. And he has this deep sigh, this agony that is going on inside of him about the way things are and the way they should be. We can identify with this. We can identify in this in our own experiences. There's a lot of suffering that we see uh, in the world, in the lives of human beings. We also see it in creation. Um, the, one commentator writes this about the deep sigh, saying uh, 
the deep sigh physically expresses. Jesus is physically expressing the tension between what the world has become and what God initially intended. Going back before the fall, before, before our, our, our DNA was, was messed up, before the Garden of Eden was, was messed up, and, and, and he's seeing all of this come out in just this intense way in this man's life, this, this deep sigh. We see this in the scriptures, this, this reality of the fallenness of creation, the fallenness of human beings. The, we see this not only um, here, but we see it in a variety of places in the New Testament. We see it in Romans chapter 8. It says there, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Even the creation has been groaning. It's not the way that it should be. Not only creation, not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. We have this hope in the gospel, but when we look at this world and if we look at the scriptures and we look at Genesis, we, we, we live in a world that has been cursed because of the fall. And it is not the way that it should be. I don't know if you um, watch, uh, some of you like maps. Do you also like uh, documentaries, nature documentaries? Any Planet Earth fans out there? Anybody like Planet Earth? So we got Planet Earth 2 coming out. Is it out yet? I don't think it's out. I've seen some clips and things of Planet Earth 2. And Planet Earth 2 has made the news, this nature documentary, and one of the, the ways that it has made the news is because of this footage that they filmed in the Bahamas. I'm not going to show this footage. I looked at it, but it would be, be too depressing to show this uh, footage today. But they filmed these baby turtles hatching in the Bahamas. And, you know, the, the, these turtles have been designed to, to go toward the sea and toward the moon. And, and they, they, the light of the moon, and, they, and they, they, when, they, when they hatch and they come out in the sand, they, they, they go toward the sea. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but what's happening and what they filmed is as the Bahamas is growing, the turtles are hatching, and they are going toward the streetlights and toward the traffic. These little baby turtles. Yeah, you see why I didn't show it. It's hard enough, right? Some of you are thankful. I know some of you said, why did you show that? That was hard, you know, showing this video in the past or whatever. But that's what, anyway, the, the, the creation is groaning for redemption, whether we have messed it up or whether it's just from the curse from the fall. The creation is groaning, humanity is groaning, and Jesus has this deep sigh as he looks at this man. But he cries out with the power of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, be open. And at this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. This is just good. This is just glorious. This is a foretaste of what we have to come in the new heavens and the new earth when all things are made right. And there are no turtles heading towards streetlights. There are no people who have grown up not able to communicate, not, not, not able to hear the birds singing, not able to hear their mother's voice. Jesus has done a great thing here. And you can just imagine being on this scene. I mean, again, this is why I showed this film. I want to try to take us back to the first century. We need to think as, as in the year 2017, but we need to go back to this event actually happening 
there in that Decapolis region where Jesus is now being welcomed. Well, let's go back to the text here, verse 36. Jesus commanded them, this crowd, the people who brought him, not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Again, throughout Mark's gospel, those of you that have been here for weeks or months, he is just surrounded everywhere he goes. He has trouble doing what he wants to do, to spend time with the disciples. He has trouble resting. He has trouble moving about. So Mark is letting us know that he's made this command, don't tell anyone about this. I've got enough people tracking me down. And Jesus, we're told by Mark that his main message was to preach this message of repentance. His mission eventually is the cross. But at this point in his ministry, his focus is on the 12 disciples and to preach a message of repentance in preparation for his ultimate work on the cross. So he asked them to, to, to be quiet, and not, but they don't listen. And they just keep talking because of what they have seen. We want to see more of this. Look at verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. So this tells us that they had confidence, tells me that they had confidence that he was a healer. He's done lots of amazing things, but they weren't expecting him to do what he's done with this man who can hardly speak and who's deaf. And now instantly this man is speaking plainly. He can hear, he can speak. People are overwhelmed with amazement. And they say he has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus does all things well. Another commentator writes this. He says about this little section that we're looking at today of Scripture, the focus of this entire account is on the confession that Jesus does all things well. This is what he does. Creation is messed up because of our sin. Because of the curse, creation is messed up. Human beings are messed up. It is all a consequence of, the sin, but, uh, of our sin. But Jesus does all things well. He has the power and ability to heal and to make new. Mark is frequently alluding for the careful reader to various passages in the Old Testament. And again, I think he's referring to one here, to Genesis 1.31. The act of creation itself, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We have a little picture of Jesus doing kind of a recreative, a redemptive work here. He does all things well, as God did in the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth, perfect and without blemish and without deaf people, without people who couldn't speak. So, this is the end of our verse by verse. What do we do with a passage like this? We've studied the word of God. We've looked at it. We've heard from it. I think we understand it. But, but the most important thing, perhaps, when we read the scriptures, when the scriptures are preached, is that we actually apply the word of God to our lives. So what I want to do in the remaining time that we have, just a, a few points here about how we might apply this passage in our own lives. And here's, here's where I'm coming from. You know, I, as I have been studying the book of Mark and, and, and been preaching through the book of Mark, I see miracle after miracle after miracle. I see Jesus doing amazing things. And so one of the questions that I have in my life, and I've shared this before, is, is Lord, why, why don't I maybe see more of that? 
why is there no healing? Why is there no end of suffering, either in my life or in this other person's life? There's a lot of sighing that's going on, but I don't have a lot of ending stories, uh, a lot of stories that end the way this way, this passage does. Are you with me? So I want to speak some, some hope into why this is the case. Three, three points in our last few minutes. Four, or three, I had four. I think we're down to three. We'll see how many I end up having. Three hope-filled reasons that we don't have healing. Why we don't see an end to suffering. So I've got three things from the scriptures. The first one, very simple, is uh, you have not asked. Some of us, perhaps have not experienced a miracle, have not experienced the alleviation of suffering, have not experienced God's power in a way like this simply because we lack the faith to ask him to do it. This is uh, what it says in James chapter 4. The word of God says it just very clearly, very simply, you do not have because you do not ask God. So I don't know where you are. I don't know if this is is what you need to hear today. If not, then you can just kind of move along right now. But some of you might need to underscore this. Part of being part of the church is knowing how to listen to sermons and know which which parts to kind of turn the volume down uh, and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to help you to turn the volume down and which parts you need to turn the volume up. So some of you maybe lack the faith to ask God to do things. James goes on in chapter for there and and talks about how you also ask with the wrong motives. So some of us, we may not be asking or we may have the wrong motives. And this may be one reason. Another reason is that you have not asked with boldness. You have not asked with boldness. Let's take a look here briefly at Luke chapter 11 on the screen. Jesus says to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. So this, this kind of, I think, should bring a smile to our faces a little bit as we, as we read this scenario that Jesus is describing. So your neighbor is coming to borrow bread, which you would expect, but not at midnight. We're all in bed in the first century. Most, many of the homes were just one-room homes. It's cold. The whole family's in bed together. That's, that's how they rolled in the first century. That's kind of weird too, huh? Is that weird? I think it's weird. I think it's weird. I do not want my kids in bed with me at night, not to mention the size of the bed that we would need to get them all uh, in there. But this is the situation in the first century. So this guy is on, knocking on the door at midnight. They're asleep inside, and he's saying through the door, can I borrow some bread? goes on, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Because the guy is bold, knocking at the door at midnight, he gets up. So Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. 
So some of us may not be asking. Some of us may not be asking with boldness. Again, let the person who has ears hear this. Some of you maybe need to turn the volume up on this. Some of you need to turn the volume down. But the Word of God is saying some are lacking boldness in the way that they ask. I'm so encouraged when I'm around people who have boldness in their prayer life. How many of you, people come to your mind right now that you know that pray with great boldness and they tend to see the Lord doing significant things, do they not? Can I get an amen from those who raise their hand? So some of us, we need to be praying right now, Lord, give me great faith in you that I would ask and give me great boldness that I would continually ask that I would do something as outrageous as go to the next door neighbor's house in the middle of the night, that my prayer life would be akin to that. That's the kind of boldness. All right, so now I'm going to totally switch gears a little bit in, in applying this. So some of you need to hear one and two, but some of us may need to hear number three. Some of us may need to hear all these. None of you are leaving, right? So you all have to hear all of them. Um, none of you are leaving yet. Number three. Um, God's intention is to glorify himself not by relieving your suffering, but by growing you through it. Some of us, we are lacking boldness. We are lacking faith. Some of us, his intention isn't to heal. His intention isn't to relieve the suffering. His intention is for us to come to know and love Jesus more and more through the suffering. Through the tribulations. I'm going to say more about this in just a moment. Let me go back uh, just a minute to the, to the boldness part again and give you um, an illustration of, of the of Roman numeral 2 here. I put persistence up here because we don't have time to get into all of this, but persistence, we had more time, persistence and boldness. I think boldness is the main thing that's emphasized there, but persistence also. Let me give you an illustration before we spend a few more minutes on number three and an illustration of number two. There's a man named uh, Paul. He's a father. He has uh, adult children and, and teenage children. And one of his uh, teenage daughters is just slowly drifting from the Lord. It wasn't like she had some terrible experience or this, this poignant moment. But she just slowly is drifting away from the Lord not certain about where she is, if she believes or, or where she's at. And this father has been praying for his daughter for some time. But he comes to realize at a certain moment that he hasn't really been praying with specificity. He hasn't really been praying with boldness because these kinds of things go together. The people that came to your mind, those of you that know people who pray boldly, they generally pray specifically for specific things with boldness. And so the Lord kind of opened this father, Paul's eyes to this reality that he has not been praying with specificity and with boldness for his daughter. And this happens after they've just gone out for a snow hike, gone for a hike out in the snow. They come back, it's getting dark, it's getting very cold, and he cannot find his keys to get in the car. They're in a remote location, there's no one around, this is pre-cell phones, And he's faced with what to do here. And the Lord has been showing him that he has not been praying with boldness. 
His daughter is with him. They are just the two of them. And so at that moment, he doesn't say this out loud, but what he's thinking is, I need to pray a bold prayer, not just so we could get warm and get home, but I need to pray a bold, a bold prayer for my daughter to see the reality of Jesus and his power. And so after they've searched for a while, they come together, and he prays this bold prayer that's not really typical of him. He's not someone who would generally pray to try to find his keys, ask the Lord's help to find his keys in the snow somewhere. What the, he, it's, it is a prayer of massive faith and massive boldness and undergirding his motivation that his daughter would see the Lord in this. And he prays, and what do you know? It, they take a few steps into the same place where they had already searched, and they find the keys. And he views this as one of the important moments in his daughter's return, if you will, from his perspective. When she actually knew the Lord, who knows? But outwardly, she, she started to turn at that moment in his life through a bold prayer. Okay, so now just a few minutes on, on number three. So there's, there's, there's kind of a big line here in between one and two and three. And some of us need to hear one and two. Some of us here need three. None of you can leave yet because it would be impolite. So you all have to hear all three of them. So number three, his intention is to glorify himself not by relieving your suffering, but by growing you through it. And this is, this is my experience a lot, both individually and as a pastor. Number three. And I see this experience not just in my life. Now, as we read Mark's gospel, we don't see this a lot. As we read Mark's gospel, one of the reasons for these miracle upon miracle upon miracle is to authenticate that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. That is Mark's main thesis, remember, from chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even though he's going to die this scandalous, horrendous, convicted felon, death row kind of death. He is the Son of God. This is one of Mark's major themes. And the reason many of these miracles have happened and that they are recorded by Mark is to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. This is one level for these miracles. And we have to keep that in mind as we think through our own suffering. So as I read other parts of the New Testament, I see lots of enduring suffering and enduring trials and enduring tribulations for the glory of God, not the alleviation of them. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly you are wasting away. This is strong language, folks. Your body is deteriorating. It is wasting away. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So Paul paints this picture that I think is more typical in the Christian life. That our bodies are going like this. They are wasting away. They are declining. And simultaneously our spiritual life is going like this. This is what Paul's experiencing inside. By the power of the gospel, he's being renewed day by day by day. My body is falling apart. I'm wasting away. And so he is saying to us, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, in context, if we don't understand the context, this can sound so offensive. If you're talking to someone who is wasting away because of cancer, 
someone who is wasting away because of some terrible, pain-inflicting disease. How does Paul call that light and momentary? He calls that light and momentary because this is compared to the eternal glory of being in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul can taste it. He can see it. So he can describe this suffering as light and momentary because the eternal glory of the new heavens and new earth are not like just some, okay, this is something they talk about in church. This is a reality for him. So this suffering, through many tribulations will we enter the kingdom of God, Acts 4, 20, 14, 22. This is the experience for many of us, for most of us. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, so we don't fix our eyes on the debil- debilitating cancer, but on what is unseen, on the glory of God, on the gospel, on those things that are eternal. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The Lord wants us, as we read a passage like this, to come away with hope. Whether that hope is is in the midst of healing and praises and miracles, or whether that hope is in gaining a perspective that this trouble is light and momentary, even though it is just miserable and painful. There is hope through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and ask him to help us to have that hope. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your power to heal. Lord, some of us are sad and confused when we suffer, when we don't see healing in ourselves or in others. So I pray today as your word has gone forth that we would have hope, that our hope would not be fixed on material things, but our hope would be on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would not be ashamed, that we would be bold, that by your grace that you would give us great faith to endure whatever might come our way or to pray boldly that you would remove it, Lord. And we need the wisdom to know the difference between these two. So, Lord, guide us and help us. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.